Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. I den her uge har jeg haft den fornøjelse og det privilegium at tale med den franske forfatter, journalist, aktivist, filminstruktør og meget mere Caroline Forest. Caroline Forest har været en del af den venstreorienterede bevægelse nærmest siden hun blev født i 1975. Hun har været meget aktiv i kampen for homoseksuelles rettigheder. Hun har været en del af redaktionen på Charlie Hebdo og var med til at træffe beslutningen om at trykke de tegninger, som førte til, at nogle af hendes kolleger blev dræbt. Hun har været stærkt aktiv i den antiracistiske bevægelse i Frankrig. Hun har også været meget aktiv i kampen imod islamisme. Caroline Forest er ud af en venstrefløjstradition, hvor man siger, at venstrefløjen skal stå for frihed. Og når venstrefløjen taber frihed, så bliver det højrefløjen, der vinder på det. Derfor er Caroline Forest også stærkt bekymret for den tendens, som hun ser især fra USA, til at det er venstrefløjen, der kræver censur, og venstrefløjen, der kræver, at man bruger et andet sprog, og venstrefløjen, der advarer mod, hvordan andre udfolder deres frihed. Good evening to our viewers here in Denmark, and thank you for being with us. And especially good evening to you, Caroline Forest, who is with us from Paris. Thank you so very much for taking your time. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Hun har netop skrevet en ny bog, som på fransk hedder Generation Enfoncée, på dansk Generation Krænkede, som udkom sidste år, som handler om, hvorfor det er helt afgørende, at det bliver venstrefløjen i Europa, der tager opgøret med den amerikanske identitetspolitik, fordi den, som hun siger, kommer fra nogle ekstreme magtinstitutioner, amerikanske eliteuniversiteter, Silicon Valley, amerikanske medier med meget stor magt, underholdningsindustrien, og det er Forests opfattelse, at venstrefløjen skal frigøre sig fra den amerikanske underholdningsindustri for at formulere et projekt, som bekæmper racisme, homofobi, diskrimination, ulighed på en universalistisk maner. Det er det, vores samtale kommer til at handle om. Jeg håber, I får lige så stor fornøjelse af den, som jeg havde at tale med. You know, a few years ago, I started wondering about a dramatic change in the conception of freedom among young people. You were born in 75, I'm born in 74. So I grew up with this Soisson uh, Vita background. They, they were the horizon. I knew that They were flawed. Not everything they did was right. But I shared their conception of freedom. That my mother, growing up in the countryside, coming to the university, her struggle for freedom would also be the struggle for my wife, who's a refugee from Iran's freedom. And the freedom for them to express themselves would be the freedom for all others to express themselves. And if someone wanted to limit one person's freedom, it would be the limitation for everyone. So Our conception of freedom was fairly simple, that we wanted to express ourselves and we were against prohibitions. And, uh, and then I, I noticed that the next generation, they had a, a different conception of freedom, that they wanted not to be free to express themselves, but more to be free from other people expressing themselves. That another kind of uh, freedom, that means protecting from the freedom of others. And the reason why I mentioned that is not to talk about myself, it's because It's the observation that starts your book. Uh, so how, how did you notice this, this difference between the generation's conceptions of freedom? I noticed it because uh, I, I observed many, many demand for censorship coming from leftists and young leftists. And I was uh, so 
used to observe censorship coming from the right wing, uh, right wing fundamentalist. I, I, rem I remember the time where when Madonna, for example, was doing um, a musical clip like a, like a prayer where, where she's kissing a black Christ. It was a huge, huge polemic. It was absolutely scandalous, uh, a blasphemy. But at that time, it was so fashionable to be uh, offending to someone else, especially the conservative, especially the Catholic Church. And obviously, it works well for Madonna because she sold many, many, many records after that. Um, but the times uh, have changed, obviously, because today, many young artists, uh, if they are under any, any kind of polemic, even if a small one, just a few uh, furious tweets, they immediately apologize. And for ridiculous purposes, really ridiculous purposes, remember, I don't know, the polemic about um, uh, Pharrell Williams or um, Cathy Del uh, Perry for having uh, putting pictures of themselves with uh, what you call dreadlocks. Uh, and it suddenly they've been accused of cultural appropriation. Uh, Pharrell Williams, it was an Indian, Amerindian, a uh, way of being a kind of hat that he had for a cover. I think it was for Vogue, something like this. And he had to, all of these musicians and artists uh, are strongly advised by uh, their team, especially their communication team from their, their labels to apologize like if they did a crime, something absolutely unforgivable. So this is the time we are living with. And coming, as you said, coming from a generation who fought for both uh, first, against discrimination, because myself, I'm coming from the fight against homophobia. I warn with many others uh, the equality for all to, to be free to marry a woman. And in the same times, coming from Charlie Hebdo as a journalist, I had to, to fight also for freedom of speech. So I think I was exactly in the corner at this intersection to observe that suddenly freedom of speech and equality were not fights we can... Um, we can lead together, but suddenly they were opposed to themselves by the young generation, and it disturbed me strongly. And I wanted to clarify some of these misunderstandings to, to preserve this possibility to fight both for equality and freedom of speech, of course. When, when the younger generations, when they shock me, I always ask myself, is it me that is getting old? Or, you know, you always think that the young people they they see something that are blind spots to us and they see they have experiences of unfreedom of suffering that maybe i don't see so i tend to prohibit myself from judging them too fast and i was think well they're investigating a reality that i grew up with and maybe they have some experiences that i don't have so at first i'm 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 very cautious how did you approach this channel <laughs> challenge of being the older generation teaching the young generation, this is freedom, kids. Uh, being since so many, many, many years, too young for everything, uh, too young woman to be correctly paid first, uh, too young woman to have many possibilities, I suddenly felt, yes, on the other camp, on the other side of the, of the frontier, suddenly I was too old um, to understand those kind of uh, angers. Honestly, there is a part of it, yes. Partly, it's only a question of generation. 
and the new generation is um, maybe because they suffered a little bit less than us. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. They suffered a little bit less than us. They, they are not born like me, for example, in a world where they were not free to marry who they want. I think homophobia was absolutely, absolutely more vicious uh, 20 years ago than today. So now they are attacking the end of this process, which sometimes to me seems to be a little bit too sophisticated. I mean, I, I, I love, for example, the fact that now we are fighting against micro um, offending, uh, how can you say that in English, micro vexation, the thing that is not so big, it's not a real discrimination, it's not someone that is really racist or homophobic or sexist, it's just a slightly viciously sentence who seems to be nice, but in fact, if you really look at it, it's not so nice, there is still some stereotypes in it. I admit, of course, this work needs to be done, and it's cool that the new generation is absolutely careful and vigilant about that too. My only problem starts where they react in front of this good feelings who are sometimes clumsy and not absolutely empty of old prejudices. They are reacting like if it is a real big, horrible, racist or homophobic or sexist comments uh, with the intention of actually humiliating someone or discriminating someone. Then I have a problem because the reaction is a little bit too much. Yeah. And it gives the feelings sometimes. It's helping, actually, I think, it's helping the real racist, the real homophobes, the real sexist. If you are overreacting in a way, like, for example, if you put on the same level uh, a rapist and a guy who is clumsy, uh, a predator and someone who is just, uh, okay, he's too drunk and he says stupid things, you cannot react the same way or you consider that you are victim in the same way. And that's not fair, I think. And that's not effective, more than fair, it's not effective to defend actually equality. So I admit perfectly that there is a lot of work to finish, that it's absolutely needed that the new generation are, again, very careful and very vigilant about that. I'm just asking in my book for many <laughs> a proportionality, let's say, uh, more complexity. Uh, and, and again, respecting that if someone says something you disagree with, it's not necessarily offending. It's maybe just something you disagree with. And, and something, when I first read your book, and frankly, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, there were so many observations and, and there was a temper in the book that I really liked. But I was a bit doubtful myself, how big of a problem is this? You know, how big of a problem is that, you know, I mean, the upper classes, they always have weird fights about symbols and rituals, you know. I'm not very offended about what happens in the British royal family or, or you know, and, and I'm not, royal, you know, that someone is angry about what Pharaoh Williams does. And, and I, I can see it, it, it's central in a lot of culture, especially American culture, and we're importing their moral imperialism. But how deep is the problem? How, how why is this problem big enough for you to, to write this book against it? We, we had the same conversation in France when the book came out. Uh, many journalists say, you're absolutely right, it's really uh, uh, very interesting, but really, is it a real phenomenon, or we are talking about a bunch of nuts on Twitter? The fact is that the bunch of nuts is, is a huge crowd, and there are, especially among the 
the young elite of the world, especially, of course, it started all with the, the students in American universities. They are the first and the most active in this kind of over disproportionate reactions using all their cultural power to cancel anyone they disagree with, pretending that they have been offended by something they confuse with racism and sexism and homophobia who are very big, serious problems and questions that cannot be confused with just, again, old classical book that should be read, even if you have to put it in a specific context. But now they are asking for trigger warnings to not be shocked, to not be offended. And now they are even asking in many, many important universities, we're talking about Yale, we are talking about Berkeley, we're talking about all the Ivy League in the USA. So we are talking actually about the elite of the world that is, it has been educated now since almost 20 years in this culture of counseling um, plays, books, discussion to feel safe. This is their big, big, big notion. I want to feel safe. Recently, last week, for example, some students in the USA asked to forbid uh, the play of Jean-Paul Sartre, No Exit, because they felt unsafe. Unsafe because the book was is about, about people confined, yes, okay. And also because the, the character of a woman uh, dislike some of the readers. I'm not even sure that the people who protested did read the play, actually, but they tried to cancel it instead of or not going to see the play or just commenting it afterward. That mentality is honestly now very, very, very common inside the most prestigious university in the USA. And as you said, we are importing, we are importing their, their words, this mentality, uh, their teachings, many activists in Europe coming from the identitarian left that I do not confuse with the universalist left uh, who want to continue to fight against real stuff, let's say. Real stuff, not uh, Pharrell Williams and his hairs, but really, I mean, social inequalities and real sexism and real racism. We are very more and more intimidated by this radical identitarian left copying the American one. And uh, because they are using the accusation of being racist or being even white supremacist or being sometimes uh, uh, from uh, fascist almost, just if you defend, for example, a secularist, universalist feminism. So it's becoming quite annoying to say it uh, less. And um, if we don't have this debate, if we do not clarify our ideas about where is the line between hate speech and free speech, and what is part of being leftist, and what is becoming a sectarian way of being intolerant and not leftist anymore, I think the left can die, including in Europe. The left can die from it, honestly. And I think it's a very important point in your book that this is actually a job that the left must take on itself. That sure. this criticism of this relativism and this tribalism that is inherent in this cultural critique, which I agree with you, is extremely powerful, but it's a power alliance that we're not used to dealing with. It's Nike, it's Silicon Valley, it's, it's now, it's part of the critical race theory of the White House, and it's Wall Street, 
and it's the elite universities, it's Netflix, it's, you know, so it's a very, very, I think it's a very powerful position. And again, when I was growing up, we, the liberal culture of America was a counterculture. You know, we got Bob Dylan from there. So, yeah. you know, we got all their we got power. freedom from there. Yes, exactly. And we got the pictures of, of, of freedom. But this is kind of a new cultural form of power that we are seeing. How should we understand this form of power? No, you are absolutely right. It's a, it's a very, very strong power, cultural power, coming from the Silicon Valley and all the cultural networks you described. And they have the they have the power to control our representation, the way we see the world. Um, it's coming from very rich people, actually, um, that are using sometimes the identity politics to appear as the victims and avoid the conversation about what do we do about correcting inequalities. And I think it's honestly part of what killed, or not killed because fortunately Joe Biden won this election, but it was short. It was short after a pandemic um, where Donald Trump explained basically that we should experiment to, to cure ourselves. And still, Joe Biden won really, really shortly after that. And I'm not even sure that uh, the next time uh, the USA won't elect worse than Trump if it does exist. So I think the left should really address this issue and, and should ask herself, do we want to play that game, knowing that at the end, if we, we give the impression that being leftist today is again not defending freedom anymore, we let the right wing having this flag, and we are just appearing as people who cannot stand the fact that some singers uh, are, are being inspired by other cultures, and that the fact we should uh, have only meetings uh, white and not white separated. So we should reinstall segregation, for example, inside the university, which is one of the debates we're having right now in France. So if being the left is to be pro-veil, pro-segregation and pro-censorship, it's not so surprising that the right wing is uh, rising in Europe too, as it rised in the USA. I mean, you have to understand it's part of my big concern and it's part of the reason why I wrote this book. I don't want uh, a Donald Trump in Europe, not in Western Europe, if we have it already in, in, in Eastern Europe, but can we avoid it in Western Europe? To avoid that, that populism, I think the left has a big, big, big uh, role to play. And, and one of it is to avoid this sectarian, ridiculous identitarian left and to, and to get back with the fight for both equality and freedom. Because again, I insist, every time in the history, every time the left is abandoning the flag of the freedom, the right wing, and worse than that, is rising. I agree with you, but I think there's something that to me is quite complicated, is that there is this new sensitivity and we get some, in my view, real progressive movements out of it. For instance, if you say the Me Too movement, this is not about saying this is not allowed. This is about showing something that was never in acceptable and revealing it to, well, well this happened. This was unacceptable. Sure. So that, to me, that is an extension of the civil rights movement. For something sure. that was done in secret is shown to the world and it's universal. It's the same for all. We won't accept that. So out of the Me Too movement, you see real progress being made. And interestingly enough, I think 
when you see real s systemic change, it comes from the feminism part of it. It's the universalism of, of the Me Too movement. But the Me Too movement also comes with a certain sensitivity that borders to identity politics. My question to you is, how should we distinguish what's the yeah. real historic leftist fight, where I see some progress being made in America, from what is a new and dangerous sensitivity, which is basically intolerance? Of course, it's difficult. Of course, it's difficult because, as you said, the MeToo movement, most of it, it's an, a huge revolution. It's a fantastic revolution. It's what, as a feminist, we were expecting since decades. I mean, uh, and it's freedom. It's freedom of speech. Freedom of speech to say, you're wrong. You're, you've been too far. You humiliated me. You raped me. And the fact that the shame is not anymore on the shoulders of the victim, but now it's finally on the shoulders of the rapist is absolutely progress compare, we can compare to the civil rights movement. The, 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 the beginning of what could be an overreaction is where feminism is not anymore used and it's the first years of that. I mean, in history of feminism, feminism has always been a counter power. And being feminist was something who was really, you needed to be brave to say you were feminist because, uh, and I, I really, I'm speaking from a generation who did paid for that. We knew that at the moment we said we were feminist, we were starting to have problems, enemies, to be paid less because honestly, also many of the people who are employees, uh, um, sorry, um, your, your boss doesn't like to have a feminist as an employee. So we paid the price to know that being feminist needed a certain, guts, let's say that. When the feminism start to be so mainstream as it is today, which is a cool thing, again, that's part of the victory, that's the part of what we want with the revolution. But at that moment, the counter power started to become a power that you can abuse also. Mm -hmm. It can be used by people who have non-feminist intention. It can be used with people who are using it as a tool in their game for political reason, for example, it can be used by opportunists who just are just seeking for revenge and not anymore for equality. So we are entering in a new area where feminism must be wise, not only revolutionary, uh, uh, but also wise enough to not be instrumentalized. And again, yes, we are joining the area where identity politics is simplifies everything. Honestly, it did simplify the anti-racist movement and it's now starting to also simplify too much the feminist cause. Uh, for example, we have a, a real big, big, big problem with the what we call the intersectionist feminism, yeah. uh, which at the beginning was a fantastic idea that honestly every feminist shared, including in the 70s. I was too young for that, but my my sisters in arms, uh, we did the, the free li uh, liberation movement told me, but Caroline, in the 70s, we were all internationalists. We were fighting for the civil rights movement. We were coming back from the USA where we were uh, activists there. We were fighting for the refugees, the migrants. It was part of the feminist movement, of course. So the intersection has always been there. But now there is a tendency of young anti-racist activists that joined the feminist movement as a second cause and they started to explain that the feminist movement was just a, a bunch of white old women 
and that they needed now to be careful if they are, for example, denouncing a rapist, they have to pay attention if it is a rapist part of the, the white majority or if it is part of the minority. Uh, because if it is part of the minority, denouncing the rape can be interpreted as something that is helping the racists. Mm -hmm. It's almost never said so clearly than that. But the intimidation in the name of the anti-racist cause is still very heavy on the shoulder of some feminists today in the sense that you cannot consider, like in the past, that a rapist is a rapist. We don't care which origin, which religion is it, is it from. We don't care. If the important is to denounce the rape, is to denounce what he has done as a, as a man abusing his power. This complexity is becoming more and more difficult because, again, it's complex to explain, but the identitarian approach uh, has worn some territories inside the anti-racist movement that became more identitarian than really for equality. That mean more, I complaining in the name of my identity and this is why you're going to give me something in return. That's the victimhood tendency of the world. Yeah. And then it transformed the anti-racism in something which is sometimes very counter-performative and sometimes also unfair and sometimes even at the limit of being racist with some people of the majority. And that also had an impact on the feminist movement now. So this is why it, it's, it has this tendency of touching and, and, and dividing, actually, dividing, fracturing the whole left. And I think there's an interesting point in what you're saying is that it's often been said that people who are against identity politics, they say, well, they read too much Michel Foucault in the American universities. It's all the French postmodernists and deconstruction and they couldn't digest it in America. So this is what yeah. came out. But actually one central point of Foucault is that the minority is, is not just the minority, that there is no set, it's not like a few people in society have the power and some people are always the, the victims. And it's like at the core of the campus radicalism of America is that some people are always with victims and other people are, and they are always minorities, whereas others are always in power and they, are all, they would always be the majorities, which is so ridiculously wrong. I mean, obviously, if you're in the university and if you're in the liberal arts part of the university here in Copenhagen and you're against gay marriage, you're, you're definitely a minority. You will be cancelled. If you're in favor of gay marriage in the small parts of the rural Denmark where my family come from, then you're definitely in the minority. I mean, the positions change where, wherever you are. So you can't just say, well, I am defending, like say black people, they will always be a minority. You have to look at the complexes of power that they interact with. And I think that's a core problem for identity politics, this fixed hierarchy. Absolutely. Which, absolutely. which, which uh, they're absolutely at odds with the society that we're in. They're like the society of Louis XIV. And they are the contrary of the society we were expecting and wishing uh, fighting against racism because fighting against racism at the beginning, uh, if we follow all the, the thinker of it, is to denounce first the notion of race that now has been reestablished by some of the identitarian activists that are claiming, of course, we believe that races are social constructions, but still we, we believe in it. And once you are rehabilitating this world in Europe after the whole history we've been through in the name of race, 
um, you're, you're done, you're lost. The, the extreme right will win the game. Plus, as you said, it's a vision of the identities that are settled for once for all. Exactly. You're born, you're born privilege, you're born on the wrong side, or you're born on the minority side. These do not exist in the real world. Because of the complexity of interaction, you can be straight and white and really poor uh, at a point where you're not privileged. You can be black and a straight man and being very rich, and you can be someone who is a, a game changer uh, in a position of being really privileged, actually. And considering that, no, no matter if you're rich or poor, no matter of your ideas, no matter if you are a Black Lives Matter activist or if you are, at the contrary, a Ku Klux Klan activist, what matters is the color of your skin. This simplicity, this stupidity, I'm sorry to say that, because it's, it's at a point where, again, even the stupidest extreme right of today is the only last one to think this way, honestly, with this <laughs> essentialist mentality. Of course, the left find other words to, to craft it in a, yes. in a more acceptable way. You quoted the French theory. My theory is just mine about the French theory is that only at the beginning, Michel Foucault was um, more than uh, a real complete approach about the complexity of the world. Michel Foucault especially defended the subversity, subversity of the minority, which in the, in the context of his time was a very important, interesting, effective, necessary. He made some mistake. He supported uh, Khomeini as a fantastic uh, anti-imperialist leader. Also, uh, Khomeini was supposed to lead the revolution and suppose the revolution of the minorities. We know now the end of history and he apologized for that. But once some American university, <laughs> American um, thinker took the simplicity of Michel Foucault and put it in a very more even simplest way and apply it in a different context where again, minorities are not only described considering the, the power game, but considering just the identity of them, their color of their skin or their gender, etc., etc. Then at the end, again, uh, I think the stupidest right-wing movement could have arrived to the same conclusion. So it was not necessary to quote the Foucault, French theory, <laughs> and all of that to say, finally, oh, finally, races, the, the race does exist. Uh, if you are white or black, you are different. And um, you should not, back the way, be together to discuss about racism. You should be separated. Okay, to arrive to this conclusion, I think, honestly, that Donald Trump and his fellow Proud Boys are quite happy to hear it. Really, really happy to hear it. I think this is um, something that we became painfully aware of in Denmark during the caricature crisis, because on the left, I think most of us on the left were against the caricatures when they first came out, because they came out in a right-wing newspaper that never did anything for freedom of immigrants or freedom of, of Muslims. And in our perception, is uh, on the left, I think it's the general perception. I changed my mind radically on this, but... We saw it at the time, like th this was weaponized by the majority culture to tyrannize the minority cultures. But, you know, then gradually we realized that there were actually minorities in the minority and they were being tyrannized 
their fathers would say, well, Muhammad is a holy prophet. Let's kill everyone who, de who depict him. And then after that, we had Egypt against us. And then Egypt was the majority and we were the minority. Denmark was the minority. So I think to a certain extent, it's been a very painful process for us with the caricatures. But I think we actually learned that you cannot base your normative critique on who is at a certain point the, the, the minority. You must have some universal principles saying, well, he's a religious authority. If we cannot criticize a religious authority, we cannot be a free society, no matter who it is. But I'm bringing it to, to this caricature issue because I want to ask you something. Because you were, as you said before, part of Charlie Hebdo, and you've been very courageous, more courageous than we have here. And I think we're here at the Danish media, and especially here at Information, because, you know, we were born out of the resistance movement during the Second World War. People risked their lives for five years to make this workplace where we now go to work with computers and retirement funds and we have all our welfare from that. So we owe our workplace to someone who fought with their lives. And we find it very difficult how to deal with these caricatures because on the one hand, we should definitely print them. I mean, it's not like we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't offend anyone. You know, you, you can't make newspapers on that principle. But on the other hand, we have this security issue. And we've come to this conclusion. We are saying, well, we're too afraid to print them. And if we print the, the caricatures, we have the threats here. The security apparatus could kill this newspaper. I mean, we, we, we can't afford the, the security. And this is, I think this position breeds its own cynicism. At least we've been honest. We don't print the caricatures because uh, we're too afraid. Uh, what is your reflection on this? delicate position because you invested more in it than we did <laughs> first it moved me to hear you that you change your mind uh, because i remember very well the moment of beginnings of the cartoons affair i went to copenhagen i went to interview many members of the yellen poston uh, for charlie Hebdo. And at that time, I noticed that, for example, the Politiken and the left newspaper were strongly, strongly against it. And so it only first as something coming from a right-wing newspaper and being weaponized uh, against a minority. And my perception at the time was that, uh, again, inside the Muslim community, if you can say so, there is, um, there is a, it's not a question of the number. Of course, the fanatics are a minority. But the fanatics are dominant and they're aggressive and they're violent and they are dangerous for the other ones. So you cannot consider that, for example, mocking the taboo of the fundamentalist is uh, humiliating a minority. You know, it's helping actually the free minds of a culture to have some allies against the fanatics. And if they are alone without no access to the mainstream press, then don't expect them to win. But more than that, for, for us, as a Charlie Hebdo point of view, they were a question of freedom of press, more than that. Because as a satirical newspaper, we draw, and especially my talented, genius friends, um, the cartoonists, many of them, many more of them are dead now in the Charlie Hebdo terrorist attack. But, and I have to tell you, the first time I mentioned the Danish newspaper to my friends of Charlie Hebdo, it was far before the real beginning 
of the international polemic. It was when it was just a national polemic because a friend of mine, Mehdi Mozafari from Iranian yes, origin. A friend of mine too. <laughs> you see? Yes. Actually, it's Mehdi who <laughs> did show me the drawings the first time. We were in a cafe in Paris and he told me, Caroline, a, a, a Danish newspaper, I have no idea, I had no idea what the Union Poston was, just told me a Danish newspaper shown those, can, those cartoons to fight against auto-censorship because it's impossible today to have, a, again, um, a cartoon uh, book about the life of Mohammed without being afraid. So they decided to publish those cartoons. What do you think? Charlie Do is ready to publish them. I said, Midi, you know, I know my friends. I know the cartoonists of Charlie Hebdo. They're very proud of their work. <laughs> they will tell me that their, their drawings are far better than that, <laughs> which is exactly almost what happened. But a few weeks after that, maybe a few months after that, the international polemic started. We've, we know now, the again, the contribution of a very radical imam uh, went to find the Islamic League, went to found the uh, uh, many organization who join this uh, polemic only for, again, political games, political reason, Iran on one side, Syria on one other side. And, and then we started to see those crowd burning Danish flag in the streets. And some journalists in France started to call saying, Charlie Bleu, what are you doing about those cartoons that are infuriating the world? How are you going to show them? We had a meeting about that. And the day, the morning at the meeting in Charlie Hebdo, another French newspaper would try to show those cartoons to explain the polemic, just to, to do its job as a journalist, to show, okay, there is people who want to kill all the Danish citizens. You want to know why? For this, just for simple drawings. This is pure, simple information. So for us, the decision was simple. Of course, we're not going to say only the Danish citizens should die and should face uh, these death threats and endure that because no, we are journalists. We are a satirical newspaper laughing about all the fundamentalists all the time, especially the Christian one. Of course, we're going to show those drawings. We are going to explain what we do think about it. And we are going to add our own drawings, which will be anti-racist and anti-fundamentalist in the same times. And you know the, you know what, what went after that. We started to, we were very, very, conscious that it could cost some lives among us. Um, the police protection started for most of us. Our life changed completely, but we never regret it. I can say so. I'm sure that many of my friends, those who are still alive, would say the same. And, and, and Sharb, uh, the editor-in-chief of Charlie Hebdo, who died in the attack, said for many years, we, we hadn't any choice to defend freedom of press because if Charlie Hebdo, a satirical newspaper, known to mock all the religions, is not capable of showing drawings who are at the center of a worldwide polemic, we are not a newspaper anymore and we are not Charlie Hebdo anymore. We just cannot continue our job after that. So after the terrorist attack, of course, it was really painful to see that the Gillenposten, for example, didn't publish the cover of Charlie Hebdo following the attack. A very simple, sweet cover of Luz saying, everything is forgiven. Uh, with Mohammed crying. But at least, as you said, at least what personally I appreciated is at least the Yellen Poster didn't pretend to do it because it was the right thing to do, uh, accusing Charlie Hebdo of uh, provocation. It would have been difficult from the Yellen Poster, but still, they said we are too afraid. Some newspapers said it will cost too much in terms of security. 
which is a problem because in a in France, for example, the security of the newspaper it's it is paid by the state because uh, the state consider that it's part of freedom of speech, it's part of freedom of press, and the state should protect people who are brave enough to speak and inform. It's more than speak, to inform, to, to say to the people, look, this is, and again, the last cover of Charlie Hebdo during the trial of the murderers <laughs> and their accomplices is just all of that for that. We have been killed for drawings. Do you realize that? And you need to see the drawings to realize the, this big gap between the emotion that uh, leads to kill and the reality of what was those drawing. So my position on that is I understand the, that people are afraid. I accept that some take decision to not publish. As long as they explain that this way, we are honest with you. We are not doing completely our journalist job because we are too afraid and because we don't have any money anymore or not enough to protect ourselves, which I don't really, really, which I don't accept. And honestly, it still, it still shocked me to the core. It's to read in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, or in many American media, lies, decontextualization, accusation, false accusation against newspaper like Charlie Hebdo, against France and secularism, just because they are coward enough or honestly now on the side of the people who are helping the fundamentalist propaganda by saying that this is unnecessary provocation, this is racism, this is not acceptable. Coming from journalists, it's absolutely unacceptable. They, it, before the terrorist attack that killed my friends, they could have said, we didn't realize that saying that Charlie Blow is Islamophobic by doing his job, publishing drawings would cost death threats worldwide. They could have been forgiven for not realizing what they were doing. But after the terrorist attack, no, sorry, I don't buy it anymore. And, and they continue to do it. Again, during the, the trial against the murderers of Charlie Hebdo, during, after the terrorist attack against Samuel Paty, the teacher in France, yes, yes, yes. we endure a crazy, crazy campaign in the American media, crazy campaign of hate against France. And this time, I can tell you, this is francophobia at this level of craziness, uh, lies, and again, dishonesty. I am struck by the, the level of dishonesty of those journalists. Instead of saying, we disagree, we are too afraid, or we don't understand, okay, but no, they have to accuse the journalists who are still doing their job, knowing it can cost their lives. Yeah, I was amazed by that as well. I thought it had the kind of moral imperialism about so the way they were viewing France. And it was like, I think actually that for all the criticism I could have of Emmanuel Macron, I think the way separatism was drafted was intelligent. And I think he managed to draw a distinction between what should be accepted and what should not be accepted in your laicite context that I thought was tolerant. And I thought it was intelligent at the same time. And I could see from here that that there was actually some thinking going into that and he made in my view you know more about it than i do but i think he made the right alliances so this was actually a very intelligent way of separating radicalism yeah. from from a reason reason basically in society and the americans the, you know the liberal the best papers in the world washington post new york times 
they could not distinguish between a Marine Le Pen position or an Emmanuel Macron position. Or even, I think, actually, she would be more intelligent than, 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 than they would be. I, I understand if, if you feel absolutely outraged about that. No, I, this is exactly what you said. They cannot distinguish anymore between a center leftist position or and right wing between Macron and Marine Le Pen, knowing that Macron is coming from a very tolerant background and he decided to draw a line very precisely to distinguish the radicals from the liberals inside the Muslim community and, and to avoid precisely the confusion between the fundamentalists and, and the other ones. But the problem is that that's my conclusion is that some liberal American newspaper do not see the difference between the Muslim fundamentalists and the Muslim liberals. They have a, such an orientalist exotic view on those questions that they cannot see that there is extreme right guys on one end and leftist people on the other end. They would see it, of course, if it was American citizen from a Christian background, but they don't see it about Islam. They don't see that there is a struggle between the fundamentalist and the open-minded ones and that they are helping actually the fundamentalist by saying that it is Islamophobic to defend secularism, to defend women's rights, because this is basically the purpose of this law against separatism, to defend social mixity, and also because they are thinking from a context that it is absolutely at the opposite of, of the, the European context. Uh, they are thinking from a continent where 90% of the terrorist attacks are coming from white supremacists. And the only, only big issue is about African-Americans and is about uh, police brutalities. Of course, we have police brutalities. We have racism in Europe too. But 90% of the terrorist attacks that are killing us are coming from Islamists. And we know also that we are on the, on the rise of anti-Semitism. In France, for example, the majority of the hate crimes are not against Muslims. They are against Jews. The double of it, the double of hate crimes are against Jews than against Muslims because of the Islamists. I mean, the Islamists are bringing back anti-Semitism, sexism, homophobia, and separatism in many, many neighborhoods. Of course, we need to address this issue because if we don't do it as Democrats, then, then Marine Le Pen will win the election. And this is precisely what Emmanuel Macron is trying to avoid, that Marine Le Pen and hate will win the next term to avoid again a, a, a Trump. And as Americans are not so good at avoiding Trump, <laughs> I think they should they should try the European way for once, and not the, the reverse, not the contrary. You know, I, I often wonder whether in these years where I, I'm I don't think I'm offending anyone by saying that politically and economically France is not as strong as it used to be. You know, whether this Enlightenment tradition and the universalism of France, whether that culturally and philosophically will fade in the world because this nation is not as strong. But but I doubt it. And, and when I, I think about that, then I'm very glad that you are there and that you've written this book and all that you've done for the left and for free speech and for universalism. I'm really grateful for your effort and you're a great inspiration for us here. And thank you so much for taking your time tonight and talking to us. No, thank you so much. And, and no, really, it was a real pleasure. And it's always a real pleasure to see that we share so much in Europe. Honestly, I think we really share this taste for complexity that can both help the left to survive 
and help us to not be completely colonized by simplification coming from the US. In France, we have a little uh, expression saying, we don't have petrol, but we have IDs. Uh, <laughs> let's hope that IDs can still save the world. Det var så min samtale med Caroline Forest. I næste uge skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Vi skal tale med den bulgarske forfatter og samfundsforsker Ivan Krastev. Jeg har vendt tilbage til Ivan Krastev, fordi jeg talte med ham for et halvt års tid siden om, hvordan det gik med EU og Europa efter pandemien. Og dengang, i efteråret 2020, der var vi så optimistiske på EU's vegne. EU havde lavet et fantastisk budget og gik forrest i forhold til den grønne omstilling. Og Krastev sagde, at han troede på, at EU ville komme ud som en af pandemiens vindere. Nu er vi et helt andet sted. Det er foråret 2021. Spørgsmålet er, hvordan Krastev ser Europa i dag. Det taler vi om i næste uge.